Just before I start, it, it used to be that everybody knew Robespierre and the French Revolution and everything about it. So, obviously, not having met you people before, I guess some of you know a lot about this subject and some of you perhaps less so. So, I, I will try and explain a few things as I go along just for background, um, just because I want to make sure I carry you with me, as it were, uh, and not knowing how much you, you already know. And, French revolutionary politics are so complicated that if it isn't a thing that you've studied before, it's, it's quite hard to keep up with the factions and so forth. So I'll, I'll try and explain a little bit without digressing too much, but do stop me if there's anything you want to know more about. Over 220 years since his death, Maximilien Robespierre continues to generate controversy for his role in the traumatic circumstances of the French revolutionary terror. Historians have repeatedly sought to find in Robespierre's personality and motivation a means to explain the terror. How does this work? Oh, excellent. Okay. There he is, up there behind you. Can you, is that clear enough? Yeah, good, okay. So, uh, historians tend to take up very strong positions, either for or against Robespierre. Uh, Negative views. Um, some historians simply dislike him. Richard Cobb, who uh, was once at, at Balliol here in Oxford, uh, hated Robespierre, admitted that he hated Robespierre. He said, there is no historical personage I find more repellent, except possibly Saint-Just. Saint-Just was Robespierre's uh, colleague and, and had the reputation of being more extreme even than him. Uh, Ruth Skur, who wrote a biography of uh, Robespierre entitled Fatal Purity, she attributes his difficulties to this very uh, fa same fatal purity, and she claims that, uh, although she claimed that she would try to be his friend and see things from his point of view, she actually settled on a remarkably unfriendly judgment, calling him a mediocre figure, strutting and fretting on the historical stage, lonely and eccentric and remarkably odd. Other historians, less personally antagonistic, nevertheless depict Robespierre as the man who held the reins of power in 1793 to 1794, an incipient dictator. So John Hardman, who wrote a, a short book a few years ago on Robespierre, um, says that on the 8th of Thermidor, just before his fall, Robespierre was asking for a further centralization of power in the hands of a committee of public safety purged of his enemies, a formal dictatorship. So for, for John Hardman, Robespierre is all about the personal, the personal power. Uh, Jonathan Israel, of whom you may have heard, who uh, really, really dislikes Robespierre also, in his latest book, uh, Revolutionary Ideas, describes Robespierre conducting a putsch, that's the word that he uses, to overthrow the Girondin faction, um, and says that the fall of the other factions, the Ebatiste and the Dantonis, strengthened, uh, in Israel's words, the Robespierreist dictatorship, dishonest hypocritical and Cromwellist to the core. And on a personal level, Israel also describes Robespierre's uh, megalomania, paranoia, vindictiveness. So if you want to, to see Robespierre as a monster, you have plenty of ammunition there in uh, much of the historiography. But a, a great part of these narratives, um, in fact, um, comes from the Thermidorian fabrication of the myth of Robespierre. So the Thermidorians are the people who overthrew him and in doing so, they then construct a certain kind of view of Robespierre, which has stuck ever since, that he was the one person responsible for the terror, whilst they had nothing to do with it, and their hands were clean. So, so there's this kind of, much of what is said about him is this, this Thermidorian construction. Now, there are positive views of Robespierre. Um, just recently, in fact, very topically, uh, Mélenchon 
great admirer of Robespierre, um, and uh, Mélenchon, of course, polled very well in the recent election in France. So there are still people politically who are impressed by him. Historians, too, have been reevaluating Robespierre in th recent years. And in fact, there have been uh, three biographical works to have come out just, just in the last few years, which uh, place a much more positive light on Robespierre. One of these is a biography by the Australian historian Peter McPhee, uh, and then by two French historians just in the last two years, Hervé Leuvers and Jean Clément Martin, a great, uh, well known historian of the French Revolution, Jean Clément Martin. And both of them, uh, both those, well, both of them and Peter McPhee also. Um, stress really uh, much more positive aspects of Robespierre. Peter McPhee and Hervé Lovers uh, stress his, um, his formation, the fact that he was an adult at the time that the revolution broke out. He was already fully developed. He'd had a career as a lawyer in Arras. And they, so you have to sort of see him in terms of that, that context of his, his youth um, and how he came to adulthood. Uh, McPhee also emphasises Robespierre's physical and psychological ill health in the last months of his life, which is quite a controversial topic, which I can talk about if you want me to. Uh, and Martin and uh, Lerber's also emphasised the degree to which our view of Robespierre as a monster it was constructed uh, to a large extent by the Thermidorians who overthrew him. Robespierre continues to generate endless biographies, and he's the one French revolutionary that everybody has heard of, so much so that if you know the uh, game Assassin's Creed, I'm sure none of you play that, but if you do, he's, he has a starring role in it, so everybody has heard of Robespierre, uh, or they think they know about Robespierre. And he remains an endlessly intriguing but difficult subject. He is very difficult. Uh, interpreting his life is very problematic. There have been no significant new sources for a long time. In 2012, a number of papers surfaced which had been kept by a family, uh, descendants of people who had been close to Robespierre. And although those papers were interesting, there was nothing there that wasn't already known. It wasn't a shining new kind of light on Robespierre's uh, uh, personality or politics. So, is there anything more that we can say about Robespierre? Is there anything that can be added to this? Well, I think they can, obviously. Um, and in my talk today, what I'll do is line up in the more positive camp. I'll put my cards on the table straight away. But I will do so by taking a particular focus. So whilst many works have uh, looked at Robespierre, the individual, explored his childhood, his personality, psychology, you know, whether he had a deprived childhood because his mother died and his father basically ran away and all this sort of this psychoanalytical stuff. I'm not going to talk about that. What I, the, the view I take is that if you want to start, understand Robespierre, you have to put him back in the sea of revolutionary politics. Put him there. And if you're understanding the politics, you start to understand Robespierre as a political operator. And for me, that is the most interesting thing, because he's interesting because he was a, a revolutionary politician. And I would argue that by putting him back in the sea, really, we can come closer to an understanding of him which is more measured, which is less about the monster, as it were, and more about the, the politician. What I'm going to do today is put Robespierre's ideas, motives, and actions within the wider context of the politician's terror, which engulfed deputies in the National Convention. Now, the politician's terror is a term I identified and used in my book, to which Audrey referred choosing terror. That was the book 
cover and it shows uh, the Knights of Thermidor. It's a 19th century depiction, uh, but it shows the Knights of Thermidor. That is the day that Robespierre came to the National Convention, the Assembly, and his own people, Montagnard, the, uh, the radical deputies in the Convention, turned on him and his arrest was decreed. And this uh, scene depicts some kind of fighting, literally almost fighting in the Convention. So the politician's terror, uh, a term I use in my book, it was the terror that revolutionary leaders meted out to one another. And what I argue is that the revolutionary leaders themselves were subject to terror. This took two forms. Firstly, revolutionary leaders were liable to arrest under the laws that enabled terror as successive laws remove their parliamentary immunity and criminalize the wrong political opinions. Secondly, they were subject to the emotion of terror fears that they could not openly acknowledge because innocence was meant to be fearless and fear was a sign of consciousness of guilt, increased in intensity, above all during the critical period between March 1793 and July 1794. This fear in turn influenced revolutionary leaders' choices. Ironically, leaders of the revolution had much more cause to fear the terror than most of the Parisian population. A high proportion of the leaders of the revolution, above all those who either were or had been members of the Jacobin Club, died violent deaths, either under the guillotine or by their own hands, that is, to preempt uh, public execution. The politicians' terror climaxed in a series of trials and executions of revolutionary leaders during the year two. Sorry, I'm not explaining the year two, yes, the revolutionary calendar. Yeah, 17, good, good, all nodding, great, 1793 to four. A series of factions, the Girondins, the Ebertis or Cordeliers, yes. I'm, I'm happy to explain. I mean, yeah, okay, no, we're all good. We're all good on the same page. explain, yes. You want me to explain? Yes. yes. Oh, okay. Oh, cool. All right, all right, okay. Um, the Girondins, they were, um, they'd started out in the Jacobin Club, like Robespierre. Their leaders, people like Brissot, had been uh, friendly with Robespierre. But this particular group fell out with Robespierre over the question of whether or not they should go to war, whether France should go to war with the foreign powers, primarily Austria, in April 1792. Brissot said that war was the best way to flush out the enemies of the revolution, by which he meant the, the monarchy. Uh, Robespierre opposed the war. He opposed it, even though he became very unpopular for, for, for doing so. Uh, because people pushed the patriotism card and said good patriots should want a war. But Robespierre opposed that war. He said he thought it was a crazy idea. Uh, France was unprepared. And when uh, Rousseau said that they should um, have a crusade for liberty and that they would be welcomed uh, by foreign peoples bringing the revolution abroad, Robespierre said no one welcomes armed liberators. And for this, I have a great deal of time for Robespierre. Whatever he became afterwards, I think he was absolutely right to oppose that crazy war. Uh, a war that Brissot and so forth said would be over in a few months, but actually lasts with two short breaks um, up until 1815. Oh, a generation. It far outlasted Robespierre and uh, Brissot. So the, the gap between uh, the Girondins and um, other Jacobins who sided with Robespierre began with the war. By 1793, that gulf has absolutely hardened into two factions who hate each other and are, are opposed to each other, the Girondins and the remaining Jacobins. Jacobins in the National Convention are also called Montagnard mountaineers because they sat high up and have I lost you. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, yeah, we'll be good. Okay, right. Um, 
The Ebatistes uh, were a faction of, um, I mean, these are all radical revolutionaries, but the Ebatistes were a faction kind of way, way, way over to the left and self-appointed spokesman for the Paris militants, the sans-culottes, the extreme radical faction. The Dantonistes, uh, well, I'll talk about that. In fact, the talk is partly about the Dantonistes. Uh, Georges Danton, of whom you may have heard, yeah, okay, um, was a, a Jacobin, uh, a Montagnard, like Robespierre, and the two have been friendly. But over the winter of 1793 to 1794, Robespierre begins to line up against Danton and Danton's uh, friend, also Robespierre's friend, Camille Desmoulins, and this results in the fall of the Dantonist group, the very famous trial, and that's what I'm going to talk about later on. Um, that's it, yes. <laughs> so these factions, the Girondins, the uh, Ebatistes, the Dantonistes, and also the Robespierreistes, that is Robespierre, Saint-Just, and their faction, all of these groups were uh, at various points uh, attacked by their fellow revolutionaries and uh, put on trial and um, ultimately executed. In fact, the Robespierreistes, they weren't even put on trial. They, they were just identified as, as uh, uh, having defied the convention and, um, and then uh, executed. Now, these trials of political factions were some of the most notorious of the revolution. And despite uh, people's continued interest in the subject, the nature of these factional trials is not well understood. While these trials constituted a travesty of justice for the victims, they were also atypical of the processes of the Revolutionary Tribunal in Paris. The politicians' terror was characterized by a process often confused with or assimilated to the general terror, that is not the terror not directed specifically against uh, revolutionary leaders themselves. Uh, but in fact, I think the politicians' terror should be seen as distinct from that general terror in many, though not always. And that's particularly important because the politicians' terror involved a series of trials in which justice played little part. And yet they're often taken as emblematic of not just the terror as a whole, but also of the revolutionary endeavour itself. And I think we should see the politicians' terror as distinct, with different origins, a different evolution, and different structure. It was not the whole terror, not even entirely typical of it. And this politicians' terror persisted after the fall of Robespierre, as deputies sought revenge for the deaths of friends or their own imprisonment. And this includes surviving uh, friends of uh, Danton, uh, surviving Girondin, who came back to the convention and basically wanted revenge. So this politicians' terror, when they turn on one another, is even more deadly than the general terror. In fact, the Revolutionary Tribunal in Paris, the central tribunal that's set up to try political cases, which, which is the cases in Paris during the terror, of the people who were sent before it, uh, almost half were acquitted, in fact, right up until the last seven weeks before the fall of Robespierre, when the law of Prairial, a very extreme law, was put into effect, for which Robespierre was partly responsible. And after the law of Prairial comes into effect, those seven weeks of the so-called Great Terror, the last weeks before the fall of Robespierre, uh, during that time, still almost a quarter of the people who went before the Revolutionary Tribunal were acquitted. So you still had some sort of chance if you went before the Revolutionary Tribunal. But during the year two, that is from September um, 1793 up until the autumn of 1794, or up, up until the fall of Robespierre at least, any deputy who went before the Revolutionary Tribunal was uh, convicted and executed. 
So they had less chance than the general population. And what I'm arguing is that that is because the people who put them on trial were afraid of them and therefore were particularly ruthless and less inclined to, to have any kind of justice, even the kind of harsh justice of the Revolutionary Tribunal. The politician's terror derived much of its intellectual impetus from the belief that politicians should be men of virtue. And this meant that as public officials, they should be devoted to the public good, not to their own self-interest. Above all, they must not be either financially or politically corrupt. They should not be motivated by personal ambition, egoism, the desire for glory, or the wish to acquire wealth and influence out of their office. So they were supposed to be the very reverse of the archetype of the old regime courtier, who was portrayed as a consummate dissembler, corrupt, self-serving, conspiratorial, and cynical. So revolutionary politicians were supposed to set themselves up as being the very reverse of courtiers of the old regime. Now, this belief in political virtue helped to inspire many of the extraordinary achievements of the revolution. But the politics of virtue would also prove to be deeply problematic and ultimately traumatic in its effects, not least for the revolutionary leaders themselves. The ideology of political virtue impacted on expectations regarding the conduct of revolutionary politicians. And I'll show you this by two images. This one, if you've done any Roman history, um, you, sh you may well be familiar with. This is the, the, the well-known painting by uh, Jacques-Louis David, himself a Jacobin and close friend of, of Robespierre, of um, the lictors bring to Brutus uh, the bodies of his sons. And this was um, up in the Louvre, fantastic painting. Um, many of you have seen it, I guess. Yeah. And it's, it's famous for its depiction of Brutus. Sorry, can, can you, are you sure you can make that out? It looks a bit... <laughs> okay. he's, he's here in the dark at the front. This is Lucius Junius Brutus, not Marcus Brutus, who, who um, assassinated uh, Caesar. And he is um, uh, an official charged with... Uh, uh, sustaining the uh, Roman Republic, the new Roman Republic, and he's found that his own sons uh, have betrayed the Republic uh, and are in league with the kings, the Tarquins, to try and return them uh, to overthrow the Republic. So he orders the death of his own sons, as you do. And here the sons are being, their bodies are being carried back into the house after their deaths. In fact, that wouldn't have happened in, in Rome. In, in the bodies were buried outside the city. But this is an artistic, bit of artistic license that David is using here. Because what he wants to show is virtue in action and the price of virtue. Because what Brutus has done is put virtue, that is virtue in a political sense, the public good before his own personal and family happiness. So on the right, you can see the women folk, the mother and the sisters of the young men who've just been executed. And uh, they are showing all the anguish, all that natural human emotion, devastation, the price of virtue and what it has cost. Uh, and there's Brutus. And you can see, uh, he's, he's holding his hand, um, well, perhaps you can't see, but he's holding clenched in his fist. He's, he's holding uh, the evidence of his son's treason. But his, his hand is tightly clenched and his body is twisted, his whole body is twisted, his legs are twisted. He's suffering, you can see, incredible anguish 
in what he's doing, but he's, he's sticking He's sticking to what he knew was the right thing to do, even though this has destroyed the happiness of his family and himself. And I think it's a really interesting image because it shows that David is very aware that virtue has a price. There's a price to be paid for political virtue and sacrifice. A really, really interesting portrait, I think. And 1789, long before the terror, but when the terror occurs, this is the kind of way that revolutionary politicians are supposed to see themselves. Virtue is a really tough call to be virtuous, to put the public good before anything else, before your family, before your friends, before your ambition, before your advantage. What kind of politicians can do that? It's a really, a really tough thing to do, and that's how it's shown. Um, here, is a, the, the, here are two more um, paintings, also by David. Uh, and here they show virtue again. Now these paintings, the one on your right, I, I think most of you will be familiar with. This is the death of Marat, who was a, a Jacobin who was murdered by uh, Charlotte Corday, who was a partisan of the, uh, the Girondins. And on the left is uh, a sketch. It's all, it's all well, sorry, it's an engraving. It's all that remains of a painting that David also did of another murdered uh, deputy, Le Pelletier de Saint-Fargeau, who, who had voted for the death of the king and then been murdered that same evening in a restaurant by somebody who took exception to uh, what Le Pelletier had done. Now, these two paintings that uh, David did, they actually hung in the convention, in the assembly hall, uh, where they met. And they hung behind uh, the speaker to the left, uh, uh, the president of the convention, and the speaker ahead to the left and the right. So all the time the deputies are sitting there listening and speaking, they see these images in front of them. And what these images say, of course, is that you, if you want to be a good revolutionary politician, you have to be prepared to die, to sacrifice yourself. It's a very, they're very stark images. And here you see the blood and the, the sort of the naked flesh that has been torn apart. It's a it's a really quite a grim, tough image. And I think it's amazing that these they're kind of they're there, they're hanging actually in the convention as a kind of challenge to the deputies. So this is what you can expect, is the idea. So political virtue can be such a difficult thing. Now so much has been said about Robespierre's politics of virtue and and, and uh, it's, it often seems to be assumed that Robespierre was the only person who was talking about virtue, or this was Robespierre's particular obsession. He certainly was obsessed by the idea of virtue, but so were a great many other revolutionaries. If he'd been the only one to be interested in this idea, then it, it, would, have been, it would have made no sense. But they were all talking, or most of them were talking about virtue, interested in the idea of virtue, and keen to present themselves as men of virtue. He is certainly not alone in doing this. What's exceptional about Robespierre is that he's really good at it. He's really, really, he carries conviction when he talks about virtue, his love of virtue. He is what we would call a conviction politician, and that is his strength, that he has credibility, that a lot of people believe him when he talks about virtue. But he's talking a, a language, a culture, which is common to the deputies. They, they know about it. They might secretly laugh at it. Um, Danton, for example, is supposed to have joked that the only virtue he knew, he knew was the virtue of, of having sex with his wife each night. Um, and, and Robespierre kind of quoted this as a really shocking thing that Danton was, was joking at, at virtue. But this is because it's, it's something that they all know about. So Danton is making a joke about something that's uh, a common culture. 
And it's also an idea that isn't confined to the Jacobins alone. The idea of virtue is very important before the revolution. I've talked about that in my first book. Uh, and from the early stages of the revolution, there's an expectation that uh, revolutionary politicians will be virtuous, will put the public good first. In fact, so much so that you're not meant to stand as a candidate in elections in the revolution, because if you stand as a candidate, you're ambitious. And why are you ambitious? Because you want money, or you want power, or you want some grubby little thing. So, so you're not meant to put yourself forward as a candidate. And in all of the elections of the revolution, except one experimental one we had in 96, I think it was, you don't put yourself forward. You wait to be chosen. A really virtuous politician waits for people to call upon him. Um, so that was the idea. Of course, it's a very difficult idea to live up to. And I'm sure you're thinking, but were they really that virtuous? I mean, no, not really. But they were supposed to be. They were supposed to be. Um, and the Jacobins, in particular, bought heavily into this ideology, and they were to pay a high price for it. As I say, Robespierre was one of many to use this language of virtue. He strongly identified with it as a conviction politician, and he was seen by his supporters to have authenticity. Now, what I mean by that is it was, he didn't just use the words of virtue. It wasn't just a discourse, as uh, Francois Furet would have said. The important thing about Robespierre is that he had credibility. Because people become disillusioned in revolutionary politics. They quickly learn that, that, that uh, anyone who's on the make politically can use the words, talk the language, talk the talk. And so there's a growing cynicism about people who just talk about virtue. The thing is to carry conviction when you speak. Do you mean it? Is there a gap between what you say and what you do, for example? Yeah. If so, then you're, you're, you know, you're suspicious, you're suspicious. Now, one of the things about Robespierre is he lived like a man of virtue. So he lived in a very simple house. He lived as a lodger in, in the house of a master carpenter. He um, very obviously didn't take bribes. So he becomes known as the incorruptible. How many politicians do we know who are incorruptible? You know, it's really powerful kind of language. He, um, he, he lived frugally. Um, he had no kind of expensive habits. I think actually that, that came easily to him. That was his nature. He, he didn't, you know, there was nothing in particular that he, he did want. Um, but that kind of, that, that credibility gap uh, was closed for him. Okay. Nearly 40 years after he played a notable role in the French Revolution as a conventionnel, a member of the convention, a staunch Jacobin and regicide, René Levasseur published his memoir. He had been one of the Jacobin deputies who sat in the convention, occupying seats high up and known collectively as the Mountain and individually as the Montagnard, the Mountaineers. Recalling the days of the terror, Levasseur claimed that the Jacobins who had been so implicated in directing the terror themselves experienced the fear that this terror could be turned next upon them. He wrote, the terror that we inspired crept over the benches of the mountain as it did into the hotel of the Faubourg Saint-Germain. It sat on the benches of the tribunal and taught its members that they could at any moment change from the role of judges to that of the accused. And that's what he means by, what I mean by the politician's terror. That he was fearful and that he, at the time, and that he knew that terror could be turned on him as well. 
Now, we might be tempted to dismiss Levasseur's image of terrorised Jacobins as overdrawn or a plea for sympathy. Uh, perhaps there is a little of that. But Levasseur was also describing a, a phenomenon that many Jacobin leaders actually experienced. A surprisingly high number of those who directed the legalised recourse to terror in the year two themselves perished in it. Now, this fact has long been known, but historians have tended to overlook it, or if they do remark upon it, to underestimate its significance. But as the English historian J.M. Thompson pointed out long ago, he said, it's often forgotten that the terror was mainly directed not against the people, but against the government. That is, against functionaries, officials, in order to try and keep them from becoming corrupt. So it, it's something that they themselves had to fear, and the deputies as public functionaries certainly had to fear it too. Of the 749 deputies in the National Convention, 86 met a violent death during the period of the Convention, 86. Most of those died under the guillotine or were executed in some other way. A few died by their own hand in order to preempt execution. So it's a really high proportion. Uh, moreover, nearly a third of those deputies, that's 220, under, underwent arrest at some point between 1792 and the dissolution of the convention in October 1795. So almost a third of them imprisoned at some point. It was a really difficult thing to be a revolutionary politician at that time. A high proportion of those killed were the most prominent, those who were leaders, those who spoke a great deal, those who had reputations as orators, uh, the ones who were most high profile. And the great majority of the men who died were either current members of the Jacobin Club or, like the Girondins, had been members of it up until the split between the group. So it's actually a lot of that killing is carried out within a relatively small group of people. So, why were these trials of political leaders so ruthless? My book argues that a key factor was mutual fear on the part of the protagonists. From March 1793, the deputies of the convention had no immunity from arrest. Now, this was on the proposal of a Girondin deputy, in fact. This, this wasn't Robespierre who proposed it, a man called Birotteau. And he proposes that immunity is removed because they want to get at the Duke of Orléans, who's uh, sitting uh, with the Montagnard. Uh, and thereafter, deputies could be imprisoned subject only to the agreement of the convention itself. So provided people could be persuaded to vote, you could be arrested. A terrifying thing. And there was a practice of denunciation, both within the assembly and outside. This is part of how the terror operated. And this denunciation itself was interwoven with the rhetoric on virtue. So a virtuous person could denounce because they were virtuous and thinking only of the public good. Now, fear wasn't the only motive for the trials of the factions, of course. I mean, there, there were other motives as well, certainly. Uh, and fear has to be factored in alongside many other motives, ideological, tactical, personal. So I'm only talking about one aspect of it. It's not just about fear, for sure. But I do think it's significant, and I don't think we should overlook it, is what I'm arguing. The revolutionary leaders who put fellow revolutionaries on trial were motivated partly by their suspicion of factions and disunity, which they saw as being conspiratorial. In many cases, they also acted out of a genuine conviction that political opponents were at best financially and politically corrupt, and at worst in league with the foreign powers. But what I argue is it 
It was their own fear that made the perpetrators so pitiless in their handling of the factions. They were under pressure from all sides, vulnerable to denunciation themselves, both from the Paris popular militants, the sans-culottes, and their leaders, and from other deputies in the convention itself. They were also well aware that if a fellow revolutionary leader returned acquitted from the revolutionary tribunal, as Marat had done, uh, Jean-Paul uh, Jean Marat had been acquitted, then the first thing uh, such a man was liable to do was to use all his political power and influence to seek revenge upon the men who had put him there, as, as, as you would expect. So it's a very risky business. The politicians' terror was also horribly intimate terror. It was carried out for the most part within a relatively small group of people who already knew one another. Many of them were former friends, so that's why friendship features a lot in, in my book. Friendship and, and enmity, in fact. And it was in these factional trials that the Jacobin leaders themselves played a direct role. So it was in the trials of other revolutionary leaders that they were most likely to intervene in the legal process. In taking part, they were actively choosing to deploy terror. They were the accusers. They were witnesses to the conduct of the accused, because accusing men whom they, they knew, they could come up with the evidence against them. So they take an active role. They wrote the narrative of virtue and conspiracy. So they said who was a virtuous person and who was a conspirator against the revolution. And ironically, the accused shared the same view of revolutionary politics, one based on the idea of guilt or innocence of revolutionary leaders. And what you find, one of the horrible things about the politicians' terror, is, is men who have accused others and put others in the dock go on to be put in the dock themselves. Um, there are not many people with clean hands who are involved in this business. If you wanted to keep your hands clean, you kept out of it altogether, really. Some of the politicians' terror was conducted in a cynical way, as a way of uh, removing political enemies. And certainly there was, there, was, there was a lot of that in it. But I think there was more to it than that. The politicians' terror also pointed to an inner anxiety about other people's motives and the difficulty of reading what was really in someone else's heart. And it's therefore a subject that reveals a whole idea of the emotional as well as the ideological history of the terror. So that's what I have to say generally about the politicians' terror. Now, in the rest of my paper, I'd like to go on to illustrate what I mean by the politicians' terror by using uh, the example of the Danton affair, the affair that ends with the uh, arrest, trial, and execution of Georges Danton, uh, Camille Desmoulins. If you have never studied this before, uh, if you've ever seen the film directed by André Vida, have any of you seen that, Danton? This is, this is the matter that is dealt with. Uh, and that play actually was based on, um, uh, uh, the film was based on a play written by a, a Polish writer who had been very sympathetic to Robespierre, but Vida in making the film is much more sympathetic to Danton for, for reasons we, we could go into, but it's, it's kind of a whole other story. If you've ever read Hilary Mantel's Place of Greater Safety, Anybody? No, no, one or two of you. Uh, 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 there was a play, uh, The Death of Danton, at the National Theatre. Buckner. Yeah, 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 that's much earlier. But yes, so, sorry, Buckner, yeah, covers the same material. He was, he was the first, really, to, to cover that subject. No, absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a subject that's been treated again and again because it's so dramatic and it's seen by many people as being kind of at the heart of what the revolution is about. So I'm going to look at some of the factors behind the so-called Danton affair. Um, 
from November of 1793 and looking at some of the background to it. I'm oh, sorry, I didn't say that. On the, the one left, that is Georges Danton, by his own admission, not much of a looker. And uh, the one on the right is Camille Demelin, revolutionary journalist and author of the Vieux Collier. Do you want more background I can give? No? Both of them, sorry? Yeah. Oh, Demelin. Yeah, okay. He was, he was, let me think. He was, I mean, they were all lawyers, these people. Robespierre, Danton, Demelin, even Saint-Just had trained as a lawyer, but he never got around to practicing. Uh, many of them were. Um, before the revolution, Danton had been a very successful lawyer. Very, he had a post um, which um, brought him into contact with Versailles. He was really on the way up. So it's very interesting that he kind of abandons that to become a revolutionary uh, leader. Desmoulins, who had trained in the law, had not been able to practice. Um, he had, I think, what we would call a difficult personality, a bit of an attitude problem. And he, um, we know a lot about what Desmoulins thought from his letters between himself and his father. He was constantly writing to his father, wanting his father's approval and wanting money from his father as well. And uh, Desmoulins famously also had a speech impediment, which made it hard for him to practice in a public career. But when the revolution came, Desmoulins embraced it with absolute enthusiasm. He uh, went to Versailles where the deputies were as often as he could, as often as he could afford it, to see what was going, along, going on. And on the 12th of July, 1789, he leapt onto a table at the Palais Royal with pistols in his hand and urged the crowd to arm themselves to defend themselves against the soldiers of the king and always kind of took a bit of credit for the storming of the Bastille which happens two days later and says you know he was the first one he was the one who sort of took that moment he was the true revolutionary um, sorry can you tell us slightly more about Danton please more about Danton yeah yes. <laughs> okay Danton um Danton's much more difficult. You know a lot about Demelin. You can find out a lot about Demelin because of his letters and because he becomes a revolutionary journalist and he finds his métier there. And he, uh, he writes in a way that's very sort of open. He's always blurting things out, Demelin. He can never keep quiet about anything. Danton, who was uh, Demelin's great uh, friend, was the reverse. It's, it's really difficult researching Danton because there are almost no letters. He liked to improvise his speeches and he never wrote anything down if he could avoid it. Quite a canny operator. And he has a reputation as a man of um, uh, uh, a good friend, a man who liked to enjoy the good life, uh, who could lose his temper on occasion, but was a sort of a, a good fellow. So if you've seen the film, uh, Vida's film, De Padieu is kind of, is everybody's image of Danton, the kind of, uh, the good, the man who likes a good time. And is seen as being very virile and manly, whereas Robespierre is portrayed as this little dried up, sort of wizened, you know, virginal sort of um, um, political obsessive. So Danton is supposed to be everything that, that Robespierre isn't. I mean, I think it's a bit of a caricature, but if I started talking about this, I've never got the rest of the paper, but you can ask me about it in the questions. Anyway, so Danton uh, abandons his, uh, his lucrative uh, post and 
embraces the revolution. He becomes very successful through the, um, the Cordelier district on the South Bank, uh, and then in the Cordelier Club. He's also a member of the Jacobin Club, and he's a friend of Robespierre. These men are all friends together. Desmoulins and Robespierre have been at school with each other, as Desmoulins never um, tired of saying. So they, they were friendly. They were friendly. And they're all in the same political group. But there were always these rumours about Danton, that he was corrupt. And uh, to cut a long story short, he, yes, pretty certainly was financially corrupt. He managed to live well beyond his, uh, his official means as a lawyer. So he took bribes. And there are stories that he took a bribe to save the king, but obviously didn't. That he took a bribe to save Marie Antoinette, but he didn't. Those things are, you can't prove or disprove. A lot of that evidence is... It's very um, kind of flimsy and has disappeared, but certainly he had an extremely good income and lifestyle for uh, a revolutionary deputy. Now, the question was in the revolution about whether somebody who was financially corrupt was also politically corrupt. And this, this relates to their whole fear of conspiracy, which I've written about quite a bit. But this was the idea that if uh, a man was open to taking bribes, from the royalists or from the foreign powers once France was at war, then was he also an, an enemy agent? Was he part of what they, you know, what they called the enemy within? And this is something absolutely comes to obsess the revolutionaries. And there is some evidence for that. So I was going to go, I'm, I'm become sidetracking now, but I'm probably coming to it a bit, bit later on. So there was always this bit of a question about Danton and really where his loyalties were and whether he was really as virtuous as all that. So there's a big kind of debate about that. So if I tell you any more, I think I'm telling you what's in the paper. <laughs> so I'll go back to it. Okay. So this is the background. And then in the autumn of 1793, oh, well, actually, I should say about Danton. Danton had certainly been in favour of the terror. Uh, he was the person who called for the setting up of the Revolutionary Tribunal, March 1793. He says, let us be terrible to spare the people from being so. And what he means by that is they don't want a repetition of the September massacres when 1,200 people were, were butchered in the prisons in Paris. Uh, he says, if, if you're going to kill counter-revolutionaries, you know, we should at least do it properly, have a trial, have a legal process. And so he says that. And he certainly, he's not... Um, He's not averse to bloodshed, necessarily. Necessarily. I mean, none of them were. You wouldn't be a Montagnard if you were that desperate to avoid it. But the big question is then, you know, what was really going on in Danton's mind in the autumn of 1793 to the winter, into the spring of 1794? Had he really sickened of the terror? And was he part of a secret group that was trying to end the terror? That is the, the debate. Okay, so what I want to show here is the extent to which fear exacerbated by the politicians' terror was a factor in these climactic events. Fear on the part of the Dantonistes, Danton, Desmoulins, and the others with them, but also on the part of the men who attacked them, including Robespierre himself. Now, the problem lay partly with the high expectations of men in positions of political power. They were meant to be like Cincinnatus, yeah, the Roman uh, general, someone who would accept responsibility out of the love of the public good, not for personal glory, someone who would not take advantage of his position to extend favoritism and patronage to his friends or destroy his personal enemies. 
who would keep his hands out of the public purse, who would not abuse his power by setting himself up as a dictator, and who would, when it was all over, if he still lived, retire gracefully from public life to live um, uh, sort of quietly in the countryside. Yeah, that's what you were supposed to be like. And they often say, you know, once this is over, I want to go and live in the countryside. And sort of the, the, the equivalent of spending more time with my family. They're always saying this. They never say they really want to be, you know, in the heart of revolutionary power and politics. But the problem is, did such men of virtue actually exist? Did such paragons of antique uh, uh, heroism actually exist? Was it possible to find such men? And in 1793, after the overthrow of the Girondin faction, the Jacobins had come into power, effectively. They were leading lights of the revolution. And part of what that means is they're getting positions and posts. They're running the country, and there is money that comes with that. There is power, and there is money. Not a huge amount of money, like in the old regime, but there is money. There, there is money to be made. And so the question is then, really, what are, the, what are they in it for? Do they expect rewards for their revolutionary loyalty? What is happening? Um, and the Jacobin leaders themselves are subject to constant public scrutiny because all of this is taking place against a backdrop of the rise of public opinion, of revolutionary journalism, of the, the militants in the uh, watching in the galleries and the Jacobin club and their own popular societies on the streets. These men are being watched all the time and they're being watched by their own side as well. It's, it's, it's a bit like being in a goldfish bowl. So the Jacobin leaders feared the judgment of the sans-culottes um, uh, uh, upon them. The sans-culottes who had, uh, the popular militants who had uh, called for the overthrow of the Girondins. So they, they had one group ousted from power, uh, put under arrest and eventually executed. So if the sans-culottes were watching you, that was something really to be quite wary of in the year two. Uh, particularly women amongst the sans-culottes, because in 1793, many of the sans-culottes men had enlisted and gone off to, to fight with the uh, armies against the, the enemy. And women were taking an increasingly strong role in policing the integrity of the revolutionary leaders. So this is a, a petition from the revolutionary Republican women to the convention in August 1793. It's just one example of this kind of scrutiny. Um, these women, radical women who formed into a club, extremely radical group, and they met in um, uh, the crypt of the Church of Saint-Eustache in Paris. They said, believe us, legislators, four years of misfortunes have taught us enough to know how to discern ambition, even under the cloak of patriotism. We no longer believe in the virtue of these men who are reduced to praising themselves. Finally, more than words are necessary if we are to believe that ambition does not rule your committees. So the women have learnt the language of virtue there, which they are using in a very, very clear way to call to account the, uh, the revolutionary leaders on the, on the committees, the Committee of Public Safety and Committee of General Security. Now, in the autumn of 1793, two new factions formed amongst the Jacobins, who became known respectively as the Ebertiste and the Dantoniste after their leaders. So, uh, yeah, okay. Both these factions, for different reasons, opposed the rule of those two committees, the Committee of Public Safety and the Committee of General Security. The Ebertiste now dominated the Cordelier Club and also the Paris Commune, and they wanted an escalation of terror, and they wanted forcible dechristianization. 
Their leader, Hébert, with his uh, journal, his newspaper, Le Père Duchesne, was a self-appointed spokesman of the Paris militants. And he was also resentful because he felt very strongly that he had been passed over when it was a question of jobs and opportunities. He'd wanted a senior post in the, the new regime and he hadn't got one. And he was personally at loggerheads with both Danton and especially Demelin. So that there's personal enmity going on here as well as the politics. Now, the Dantonistes, it is said, pursued the reverse policy. They wanted the terror to be wound down and the power of the sans-culotte to be curbed. Uh, and it said that from late 1793, they called for a policy of clemency and amnesty towards counter-revolutionaries. Now, I say it's said to be so because one of the things I argue in my book is that the, the Dantonist or indulgent faction is is not nearly as coherent as, as has been argued since. And one of the things that, that, that they, the um, people who attacked them gave them a coherence, which I don't think they really had. And Danton's been said to be their leader, but he didn't actually play a prominent public role in the faction's activities. In fact, to a large extent over that winter, he remained in the background, which I think is quite curious. Now, members of Danton's faction included his close and trusted friends, and most of them had reputations for financial corruption. So his faction included the journalist uh, Camille Demelin, and also uh, a man called Fabre d'Eglantine, who was a poet, actor, and uh, now revolutionary. Now, it's hard to say exactly what Danton's motives were in opposing the Committee of Public Safety. As I've said, stories about his financial corruption have been circulating for years. Uh, and his tactic, learned through long years of revolutionary politics, was to keep a low profile over such matters and to say nothing that could be used to incriminate him. People continued to speculate openly about his venality, however, and he was increasingly be, being attacked by this. Now, repeatedly, Robespierre defended Danton when he was being attacked by his corruption, right up until the 3rd of December, 1793. That's the last time. So actually, only a few months before... Robespierre openly turned on Danton. He defended him publicly and said, well, <laughs> maybe Danton is a bit venal, but his heart is in the right place. He's a good revolutionary. He's not, he's not uh, in the service of the foreign powers. So a key question is, was Danton's financial corruption, was that indicative that he was also politically corrupt? Uh, and the evidence for this is circumstantial and not conclusive, and none of it was even presented at his trial. His trial is an extraordinary affair, really. He was accused of the, the vaguest, most peculiar things. Um, but it's not beyond the bounds of possibility. He was always something of a political adventurer, so he might, he might have accepted bribes from Pitt. It's possible. But if he did, I don't think he did very much to earn them. In late 1793, Danton's close friend Fabre, the actor, came to the Committee of Public Safety with a tale of a conspiracy on a scale that outstripped anything they had hitherto imagined and convinced them of its reality. This was known as the foreign plot. And if you can understand this, uh, <laughs> no historian has ever properly understood the foreign plot. It's a really kind of murky affair because there are accusations and counter-accusations and most of the evidence has long since gone missing. People had reasons to destroy it. So the, the kind of what was at the heart of it is very hard to work out. 
But the story of the foreign plot is that some of the most extreme Jacobins are in the pay of the British government and were attempting to discredit and destroy the Republic by proposing ever more violent and destabilizing measures. So Faber accused men on the extreme left, men in the Ebatiste network, and said that you know, these really extreme men are only being so extreme because they want to discredit the revolution. And actually, William Pitt is standing right behind them, is, is what he's saying. Now, Fab's motives for concocting this tale, he, he did make it up, were unedifying, but like so much that happens in the year two, uh, he's driven by fear. He himself was deeply implicated in a financial scandal as a deputy uh, in an affair that becomes known as the affair of the East India Company. Uh, several deputies had uh, participated in the forgery of a decree, forcing the company into liquidation in order to profit from its assets and shares. And Fab definitely was party to this financial um, um, trickery. And it was probably because he was frightened that his part in this was going to come out and the document with his signature on falsifying those, uh, 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 the transfer of the shares would come to light that he went to the committee, so strike first. So he goes to Robespierre and he tells him this, this um, story about this terrible foreign plot. Robespierre and the other committee members believe Fab because it dovetails with their own thinking about conspiracy. So they, they, can, they can find it uh, a very plausible thing because they're all frightened of as conspiracy. And Fab himself seems to have been a very convincing liar. He was, after all, an actor. And so he got Robespierre believing him, and Robespierre was inclined to believe him. Uh, Fab's revelations, though, were a bitter blow for the committee because it meant that members of the, the Jacobins uh, were, were really secretly you know, the enemy within. And his allegations chipped away at the authenticity of the Jacobins. Now, as I've said, one of the principal questions for historians is whether there's any substance to these corruption and foreign plot allegations, and we're unlikely ever to have a definitive um, answer. By the summer of 1794, most of the protagonists were dead. And the ones who survived had every interest in keeping the evidence quiet. So um, another part of the, the plot I won't go into is uh, Chabot, this one here. This is Fab here, and this is Chabot. Chabot had been a deputy uh, who had been on the Committee of General Security, and he'd been suspended with serious uh, uh, fraud uh, allegations hanging over him. And he also counter-accused and talked about having been bribed by extremists and so forth. So these men are actually, unbeknownst to one another, are accusing one another and many other people as well. So there's this whole horrible network of counter-accusations that is going on. Um, is there anything behind it, you might ask? Um, there's quite a bit of evidence to suggest that some Jacobins have been bought, whether by French royalists or foreign agents. Uh, Chabot has certainly been given a large amount of money, which he, he then, in fright, bring, brings to Robespierre and says, look what they were using to bribe me. And he has this huge, huge sum. Um, but there's little uh, indication that the plot was concerted. That is, that the Ebatiste on the left and the Dantoniste on the right were secretly in collusion. That, that kind of extent of kind of organization and conspiracy, no, that doesn't seem to have been the case. Um, but that is what the uh, revolutionary leaders, like Robespierre, came to believe, that the extreme left and extreme right were in secret collusion with one another and all trying to bring down the, pub the Committee of Public Safety and the Committee of General Security that were holding the line of the true revolution in the middle. 
Does that? Yeah. Okay. That was that was what uh, Robespierre certainly and others come to believe. Uh, and I think you have to understand that although some of what happened in eliminating Danton was cynical, some of it also was based on, on genuine fear. That is, they may have identified the wrong conspirators, uh, but their fear was a genuine fear. There was real fear that the Jacobin uh, version of the revolution was not going to survive and that there was some basis in reality for their fears. Now, the person who actually was most open in calling for uh, clemency was not Dalton at all. As I said, he managed to keep quiet. It was Camille Demelin, the man who never could keep quiet. And the organ that he used for this was Le Vieux Collier, his last newspaper, most famous newspaper. He, uh, it's called Le Vieux Collier because he himself had been a member of the Cordelier Club back in the early days of the revolution. And the, Rev the Cordelier Club had now been taken over by Hebert and the extremists on the left. So in calling his newspaper the Vieux Cordelier, the old Cordelier, what he's saying is, is the true Cordelier. He's the real, authentic revolutionary from the beginning. He's the one who has the, the voice, the legitimacy, the right to kind of call the shots on what the revolution should be because he was always a good Cordelier. So, Le Vieux Collier, his famous newspaper. He begins publication of it in November 1793, and it became the most overt vehicle through which the Dantonese group called for a winding down of the terror. Um, if any of you have ever read it, it's the most extraordinary uh, journal. Anybody here familiar with it? No? It's, it's amazing. There were only seven issues altogether. The seventh was published after his death. Bits of it have been translated, uh, but if, obviously it's better if you can read the, the original French. And it's the most extraordinary document because it's attacking the terror more and more openly. And it's attacking the terror from the perspective of a man who had been a leading terrorist, Demelin himself. Um, the Vieux Collier does a lot of things. Um, one of the things it does is attack the sans-culotte leader, Hébert. And uh, Demelin and Hébert hated one another. So part of what they're doing is, is kind of mutually uh, insulting and attacking one another. Up to a point, Robespierre was in sympathy with the Vieux Collier. And this is the interesting thing. This is why Robespierre is an interesting person. He and Demelin have been uh, friends for a long time. And Demelin took the first two issues of the Vieux Cordier to Robespierre for Robespierre to read. And as I said, as late as uh, the previous December, Robespierre had still been publicly defending Danton's integrity. Robespierre even gave fleeting support for the idea of a committee of clemency, which would hear cases of people arrested to establish whether their arrest was justified. So for about two days, really, um, he seems to have come out in the open saying that, yeah, perhaps clemency is the thing to do. Perhaps we should start to um, let people out of the prisons and establish whether they, they should really uh, have a case to answer. So for about two days, he pursues this, and then he backtracks. He backtracks. And he probably backtracks because other members of the Committee of Public Safety opposed him, particularly Bia Vahen, who was very much against this. So I, if you want, I can talk a bit more about that. But, but up to a point, Robespierre defends this policy, and then he takes fright, and he draws back. Demelin was coming under terrible attack.
attack in the Jacobin Club for writing the Vieux Collier. People were saying he wasn't a good revolutionary. And when he defends himself, he says what a man of virtue he was. And what he uses some really terrible words to justify himself. Hang on, here. There, this is what he says. I was always the first to denounce my own friends. Yeah, the man of virtue. I was always the first. It, it's a good thing. Yeah, I denounce my own friends. That's what he's saying. It establishes his virtue. From the moment that I realized that they were conducting themselves badly, I resisted the most dazzling offers and I stifled the voice of friendship that their great talents had inspired in me. That's an extraordinary thing to say. But what I'm saying is he was afraid too. They were all really, really frightened. And although, in a way, you could say that uh, Demelin is very heroic in writing the Vieux Courrier and defending the liberty of the press and saying that the terror is not needed and that love is more important than terror. He said all these wonderful things in the Vieux Courrier, but he also says this. You, and, and people are complicated, is what I'm saying. So perhaps uh, Robespierre less of a monster and uh, Demelin less of a, a hero than you might sort of think. This is what he says. Um, now, even though uh, Demelin had been saying this, trying to sort of extricate himself, he's still being attacked in the Jacobin Club, and he was relying on Robespierre's friendship to keep him safe. Um, in the Jacobin Club meeting on the 8th of January, 1794, Demelin took to the Tribune to respond to the denunciations made against him, and Robespierre tried once more to extricate Demelin from blame. And what Robespierre says is, let's burn the Vieux Cordelier. Put the, there was a, a brazier they had in, in the, uh, the Jacobin Club. We'll burn it. You're really sorry you wrote it. You don't know what came over you. We'll just forget that you, you uh, asked for clemency for the, for the people accused of um, counter-revolution. So what Robespierre is trying to do there is get Demelin off the hook. It's clumsily done. And Demelin, who, as I said, never knew when to keep quiet, responded to Robespierre, burning is not an answer. This is paraphrasing Rousseau. Robespierre loved Rousseau and identified with Rousseau. So by saying this, he's calling Robespierre into question in the Jacobin Club. And then Demelin goes further. He said, well, you he says this publicly in the club, you read the first two issues of the Vieux Collier. You approved of them. And he's trying to implicate Robespierre. Robespierre backtracks immediately. He says, I, I read the first two issues, but I didn't want to read any more. It was getting too difficult. Um, you know, you will have to answer. If you won't burn them, then you will have to, the issues, then you will have to answer for them. And so he backtracks there. Um, Robespierre would no longer come out into the open to defend Dimola. Um, but he did, um, in a cautious way, still defend him. Uh, some historians actually say it was Robespierre who arranged for Dimola to be... Uh, uh, expelled from the Jacobin Club, but actually it wasn't. It was the reverse of that. It was Robespierre who kept Demelin in the in the Jacobin Club uh, by saying that they shouldn't be considering just one person. He does it in a roundabout sort of way, but it's very clear that what he's doing is keeping Demelin in the Jacobin Club, and we know that because Camille Demelin's wife, Lucie. Uh, wrote at this time a panicky letter to uh, a mutual friend of herself and her husband, whose name was Ferrand. And she describes the fraught scenes in the Jacobin Club and how Robespierre, she says, over two consecutive days railed out or rather cried out against Camille. Yet, she says, when uh, Camille's expulsion was decreed, by a truly bizarre stroke, Robespierre made inconceivable efforts to have Demelin reinstated. 
He succeeded, she said, but in the course of the struggle, he'd seen that when he didn't think or act according to the will of a certain number of individuals, he did not have all power. Even Robespierre's power in the Jacobin Club had its limits, and if he'd been continuing to support the Dantonistes, he would have been running uh, a risk himself, and he wasn't brave enough to do that. I mean, none of this is an edifying story, but it's a complicated story. Uh, as for Danton, Lucie continued, she, she said, they no longer listen to him. He loses courage. He grows weak. And so Robespierre backtracks from defending his friends. And it's after this that Robespierre makes one of the most famous speeches, the most notorious speeches, uh, where he, this is on the 5th of February, 1794, speech on the principles of political morality that should guide the convention. And it's in this speech that he says, he tries to justify terror, and this is why Robespierre has you know, such a notorious reputation. Virtue and terror, he says, go together. You need uh, terror, because if you don't have terror, the virtuous men, the good men, will be um, weak, will be overthrown. But you need virtue, because if you don't have virtue, then uh, terror is just a crime. So terror is acceptable if the men, the people wielding it, are virtuous. Comes back always to virtue. And that's what he's trying to do there. It's a notorious speech. You'll see it quoted everywhere. Um, in the same speech, however, the second half of the speech is all about, um, it's all about veiled allusions to uh, Danton's faction and the uh, Ebertiste faction. He says there are two groups of men who are sort of supposed to be enemies to one another but are secretly on the same side. They're all against the revolution. And Robespierre really had come down to the thinking of the other members of the, or most of the other members of the Committee of Public Safety and the Committee of General Security, that Danton and Demelin must be destroyed. Having tried to defend them, once Robespierre agrees to their deaths, and he seems to have agreed to the death of Danton about uh, 10 days before they were actually arrested. Once he agrees to it, he is totally um, absolute in bringing about their destruction. And Robespierre plays a big hand in the actual arrest of Danton and Demelin. He wrote the notes that uh, Saint-Just used to make the denunciation speech against Danton. It's a really horrible, horrible speech. Um, the first intimation that Demelin had that the net was closing in on him was when Robespierre rejected a private appeal to their former friendship. Demelin said to a friend, I've done for. I've been to call on Robespierre. He's refused to see me. And the arrest of the Dantonistes was actually carried out in the night before they were denounced because that seemed to be a safer thing to do uh, for the people carrying out the arrest, to have them under lock and key. Danton was a famous orator, a great improviser and, and maker of speeches, and so they thought it would be safer to have him arrested before he was actually denounced. So it was an absolute travesty of justice. And this is the speech, this is an extract from the speech that Saint-Just made denouncing them. Those people who for four years have conspired under the veil of patriotism, now that justice is closing in on them, repeat the words of Vernier. Vernier was a Girondin leader, uh, now dead himself. The revolution is like Saturn. It will devour its own children. Hebert repeated these words during his trial. They are repeated by all those who tremble as they see themselves unmasked. 
No, the revolution will not devour its children, but its enemies, no matter with what impenetrable mask they have concealed themselves, were the conspirators who perished the children of liberty because for a moment they resembled them. Uh, and this is why, I don't think you referred to the book I'm writing now, did you? But I'm actually writing a book called Saturn's Children, which is, the line is taken from that, which is about Robespierre, Danton, Desmoulins, and Saint-Just. Um, and the, yeah, this notion of, of the children of the revolution being destroyed, as it were, by the revolution they've created. This is uh, Danton on his way to the guillotine, uh, sketched on his way there. At his trial, one of the people who comes up to accuse him, um, calls him calls them a conspirator. But again, this is someone that Danton knew well. And uh, Danton said, do you really believe that we're conspirators? And then he says, this man, Combot, you laughed. Write down that you laughed, because the, the thing was so ludicrous that he, Danton, could be a conspirator against the revolution. But here he was being sent off to his death by people whom he knew really well and with whom he'd worked for a long time. So the irony of that. Uh, Fab, the man who devised the foreign plot story, accused so many people, he was sent off to his death as well, convicted of being part of the foreign plot, the story that he himself <laughs> invented. I, it's so ironic, it's so sad. Erhard de Seychelles was one of the man whom, men whom Fab had denounced. He was also killed in this batch of people. Um, it's a really you know, sorry and unpleasant story. Um, and just finally, uh, to uh, fast forward four months, Thermidor, the fall of Robespierre. Remember I showed you that image from the cover of my book. Um, one of the factors in the fall of Robespierre, again, is fear. That is mutual fear on, behalf, on the part of the revolutionaries, both the men who overcame Robespierre because they were afraid that he would have them arrested, and on the part of Robespierre himself. And this is uh, described, this is, uh, these are um, two of the uh, deputies in the convention who later wrote their memoirs, Bodo and Thibaudot. Bodo, sorry, I've got it on my notes, I have to read it out. In the Battle of Nine Thermidor, it was not a question of principles, but of killing. And Thibaudot, the terror didn't end because its leaders were weary of bloodletting, but because they were terrified of one another and divided amongst themselves. You had to be the first to attack because whoever stayed on the defensive was lost. Pretty grim stuff. So, firstly, um, I've talked, oh, no, 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 finally, so I would say I've talked way too long. Um, just three points I want to remind you of in conclusion. The importance of the ideology of political virtue and the genesis of the politician's terror. Uh, secondly, the fact that the politician's terror involves a double bind because there's a direct relationship between being yourself subject to terror and being permitted to wield it. That is, because you could be arrested, therefore you were a person of more integrity and virtue. There were no privileges, no exceptions. Robespierre is very kind of clear on that. Um, and finally, I think we have to give more recognition to the importance of emotion in the genesis of the terror, especially the emotion of fear. So that emotion that Levasseur had described, the fear that crept over the benches of the mountain. And um, yeah, that's it. Thank you.